This is from the third chapter of Revelation, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have the reputation of being alive, but are dead. Wake up, for I have found your deeds uh, unfinished in the sight of my God. Repent and remember what you have heard and received. Or I will come like a thief to you, and you will not know the hour at which I will come. And then he goes on with this particular uh, advice for the people of Sardis. But there are a few in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. And to the one who is victorious, they will be dressed like them in white. And I will never blot out their name from the book of life, and I will acknowledge that name before my father's And his angel. Let those with ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. We talked about Ephesus last week. If Ephesus is the New York City of Asia Minor, then Sardis is the Chicago. Scholars estimate that in the first century, at the time of Revelation, about 120 to 150,000 people would have lived there. It had an amazing background. At one time, was a very wealthy city. A man named Croesus was king, and he figured out uh, many centuries before Revelation how to use sheepskin and go down to the river and get gold from the river. And so, as you probably figured out, he became as rich as Croesus. At the same time, it was home to perhaps the largest university in the ancient world. If you look on the cover of your bulletin, you'll see some of what remains of that university columns. And near that column, you'll see a green patch. A green patch was a five-acre palestra. A palestra was sort of an open exercise area because the the Greeks, the Hellenists, believed that when you uh, studied, you used not just your mind but your body as well. And to have five acres for that... Uh, was almost unheard of in that time. It was a little bit like being the first university to have 100,000 seats and a jumbotron in your stadium. It was a big deal. But also, they had an amazingly uh, great location. Now, Ephesus, we remember last week, was on the Aegean Sea. You could get there by sea, and it was at the end or the beginning of a long road called the Roman Road. But it was either a destination or a point of departure Not so for Sardis. Sardis was also on the main road, and to get to Ephesus or to get to Egypt or Persia or Arabia, wherever you might be going, you had to pass through Sardis. Uh, It was an amazing location. Scholars estimate that even in the first century, 10 to 20 million people walked through Sardis down that main road every year. Now, everything wasn't great in Sardis. Uh, About 70, 75 years before Revelation, in A.D. 17, an earthquake hit. Uh, Strabo, the geographer and historian, said it was uh, an earthquake unlike any that uh, humans had seen before that time. 
No human has ever seen this. And the city of Sardis was split into three parts there on top of the hill where they were located. Interestingly, if you go home and open the book of Revelation to chapter 16 this afternoon, you'll read about an earthquake that strikes a great and terrible city. And it's said of this earthquake that it'll be like none that's ever been seen before in human history. And it'll divide the city into three parts. You think the people in Sardis recognized that particular passage? Anyway, the city got uh, split into three. There was still an upper Acropolis, but parts of the ruins of the Acropolis from um, the earthquake went down the hill almost half a mile. And so there were people still living there, uh, really making uh, use of the ruins. But interestingly, with the ruins there in the hills, people living among the ruins, directly across from them uh, in the hills was the largest graveyard known in Asia Minor at that time, a necropolis with 500,000 people buried there because the city of Sardis had been around for many centuries. But if you were looking from where people now lived uh, in the lower part by the main road and you were looking up into the hills, you would see where a few living people still lived and you'd see the dead and from a distance you couldn't tell which was which. And in fact, today, if you go there and someone blindfolds you and twirls you around and then uh, opens your eyes and you're looking at the two, you don't know which is which. You don't know which is alive and which is dead. And it's to this city that Je- and church that Jesus writes this letter. I know your deeds. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now wake up and strengthen what remains. What's different, uh, people will quickly point out, between the letter to Sardis and the letters to the others of the seven churches, is there's no enemy mentioned. Uh, No major problem yet is facing uh, the people of Sardis. The main uh, enemy seems to be their own complacency, their own sense that they're just taking their faith and their life for granted, sleepwalking through this world. And Jesus comes to wake them up. And he does so, first of all, with a pretty serious threat. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains, or I will come like a thief. And you don't know the hour when I'm coming. Now, the people of Sardis knew their history, and they knew what Jesus knew, which was uh, early in their history, in the days of King Croesus, they were a very rich and well-fortified and well-defended city because they were in the hills. They were almost impregnable. No one could take them. But the Persians came through in the 6th century BCE and laid siege to Sardis, but they weren't making any progress. Until one day, almost like a scene from Monty Python or some sort of comedy, there's a soldier on top of the wall uh, of Croesus' forces, and he loses his helmet. And then there's a soldier from the Persians watching, and in a few moments he appears down the hill, picks up his helmet, disappears, goes back up, and you see him back on the wall again. So the soldier figures out there must be some quick and shortcut way into that city. And what they do is they tell their commander, and at night they get forces together, they find the secret entrance, they get other soldiers with them, and like a thief in the night, in one night, this impregnable fortress falls to the Persians. But that's not the only time. About three centuries later, Uh, Greek forces are invading uh, the area of Sardis. And again, they're having a a hard time uh, conquering this fortified city on the hill. And then uh, one of the soldiers of the Greeks knows something interesting. There's a bunch of buzzards down below the city walls. 
and they're flying around. So he figures something must be there. He gets closer to look, and what he finds is that's where they take out the trash. It's their dumpster. Got some carcasses of the animals they've been eating while they were there under siege. And the soldier figures out there's got to be a way inside the city by the trash dump. Or how else could they take out their trash? So, again, three centuries after the Persians, they get a, a search party together at night under the cover of darkness. They find the secret way in by the dumpster. And they go into the city. And again, the city falls in one night like a thief in the night. So Jesus says, that could happen to you. Could happen to you. It could all be over in an instant. But notice Jesus' strategy. He's not just threatening these people who are sleeping, but he offers them encouragement and promise as well. Uh, Three things of encouragement I found. The first thing is he said, I want you to wake up and strengthen what remains. In other words, they've still got a pulse. And as we've said often on uh, Sunday morning, that you are never too late to turn back toward God. You don't have to make it all the way back. You've got to take the first step. And as long as you've got a pulse, you can choose to do things differently tomorrow or even today. You can choose. And that's what Jesus is saying. You've still got a pulse. You've still got an opportunity. And the opportunity is afforded them. And in this opportunity, they have an example that will go before them. A second promise is, you know, you've got a few people who haven't soiled their clothes here in Sardis. Now, many scholars, if you read about Revelation, will tell you that this city was, in fact, on the main road, which is true. Uh, It was also home to lots of sheep. That's true. And so it became a center for the garment-making industry, and you could sell it to the millions of people who come by uh, every year. That's also true. And so what they say is Jesus is saying, don't soil your clothes. Don't get dirty by doing things you're not supposed to do. And if you stay clean... That'll work out, and there's a few of you staying clean. Probably also true. But there's something else in Sardis that I need to tell you about. Remember last week I told you about the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it's in Ephesus. Artemis was, as far as goddesses and gods goes, not too bad. From the Greek and the Romans, the chaste goddess of the hunt, uh, I guess pretty solid character all the way around. She gets to Asia Minor, to Turkey, and she becomes terrible bloodthirsty, perverted. And the worship of Artemis, whose name is changed now in Sardis to Kibbola, involves people uh, taking knives and in acts of violence and perversion, cutting themselves. Blood gets everywhere. But this blood, because it's offered to Kibbola, has a great power. And so there was an annual festival to Kibbola, and people marched from the city to this temple, by the way, which has a lot of remains, a lot more than the seventh wonder of the world, still still left. And they marched to there in a parade. The people who are cutting themselves are leading the way. They're bleeding profusely. Then people, it's like fiesta. I mean, they line up. You know, they rent their place ahead of time. They want to get at the front because they want to be hit by that blood. The blood that hits them that offers, that's offered to Artemis has a, an, a power, apparently, in their mind. And so every one of them clamor to be, wait for it, washed in the blood. And so they are waiting to be washed and splattered in that blood so that Artemis will heal them and give them a new beginning and give them all the life. That they hope for. And so 
That's how their clothes get soiled. They line up with a, a lot of people in town, line up in this parade annually and hope to get hit by the blood. The whole town shows up for the parade, except apparently for a few Christians who know that the only blood that really has power is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so they're not there. And therefore, their clothes are not soiled. And there's a few of them. If you look for them, you'll find them is the encouragement. And you can be like them. And finally, this last promise. And if you're like them, and if you stay faithful, even when it's against the grain and doing uh, what nobody else in town is doing, then your name will never be blotted out of the book of life. Now, a lot of scholars, when you get this part of Revelation, they want to argue about, well, is he saying that if you've made a, a faith statement in Christ that, uh, that actually you could actually lose your position in Christ? And does this mean you're not saved once you were saved once? And, and they debate all that sort of stuff. And I'm happy for them to debate it, but not when I'm trying to study Revelation. Because that's not what it's about. This is about a picture a concrete picture that everybody in Jesus's, uh, who can read Jesus' letter has seen before. That is, towns have registries. They have lists of the people who are upstanding citizens in the town and, and those who are not. And they're often carved into some monument. Uh, not too many miles from Sardis. Easy drive. I went with a group of people to a place called Aphrodisias. And this is real interesting because in the museum, not among the ruins, but in the museum section of this town is an ancient monument uh, that they found in the local synagogue uh, from the first century, Revelation time. And it has a list of all the God-fearers, you know, people who loved the Jewish God, but I guess hadn't converted to Judaism or weren't allowed to convert to Judaism. And their names are all inscribed on a monument in stone. And they're called God-fearers. And and this is interesting for two reasons. One is a lot of people who study the book of Acts used to say there's no such thing as a God-fearer. We can't find it anywhere in the ancient world. Bible's not true. Luke made it up. Well, Bible is true, and it's right there in front of them when they find this monument. But the more interesting thing to me was this. When you're looking at these names on the monument in the synagogue, there's some that have been chiseled out. (laughs) Their names have been blotted out of this book. And other names chiseled on top of theirs. What happened that they were blotted out? I don't know. I hope maybe they became Christian and the synagogue got mad at them. But the possibility that you could be in a registry and removed from that registry in the ancient world is pretty clear. And Jesus is promising, saying, hold on, go against the grain. It will never happen to you. Well, just like we said about Ephesus, What happened? How did it come out after this letter um, got released uh, between 85 and and 95 A.D.? Well, let me take you to a couple locations. One is real near those columns uh, that I I showed you on the front page of the bulletin. Uh, On the main road, archaeologists have discovered from near the time of Revelation 21 shops. No surprise there if you had an opportunity to put a shop on the interstate. Only people weren't driving 55 or 70. They were having to walk. You'd do it. But in those shops, 13 of the 21 have Christian or Jewish Christian symbols carved in them as a way to say to the 10 million passerbys, this is who I am, this is what I believe. Well, that's nice, isn't it? I mean, we've seen people who on their business card put a fish or they put it on their truck or something. But this is when most of the world is still pagan. You're not winning any, convert, you're not winning any new business by putting a fish 
on your restaurant or on your garment shop. You may, in fact, be losing business. But you're going to take that risk because you want to know, to let the world know what you believe and who it is you believe in. And you're willing to take the risk economically and in some parts of Asia, the risk at your very life to make that statement. And who knows how many of the 10 million people, hundreds, thousands stopped and said, what does that fish mean? What's that cross? And you told them about it and got the opportunity. One other thing, if you go down the road and go to what uh, remains of this temple to kibble up, something interesting. A lot of the of columns still remain from this temple. But if you go around back, there's something interesting. There's the remains of a little structure about 30 by 40, 30 by 45. So let's say smaller in your home, about 1,200 feet, square feet. Right next to this temple where people cut themselves, they'll offer themselves to Artemis. Uh, they'll say that she gives life and she gives health and she gives everything. And around the corner, in this 30 by 45 building, you know what it is? It's a church. It's a church from the second century. Small little church at the back of a great big temple. Thousands worshiping this pagan goddess. A few people gathering, worshiping the true God of the universe. But there's more. Scholars believe that one of the things they did besides stand up to everybody and say, this is what we believe, is... That for those who had injured themselves deeply, bleeding profusely, maybe even in danger of dying, in this temple procession, doing the very things that were disgusting to the Christians, they believed the early Christians would take them into this temple and start bandaging them up, cleaning up their blood, caring for the wounds of the very people that stand for what you cannot stand. And they loved him anyway. So what happened? When these people got together and decided to go against the grain and at economic risk testify to Jesus. And then who further went from their witness at work to their witness where people who hated them the most, they would love them the most. What happened? Well, within about 125, 150 years, Sardis too became mainly Christian. I have a hunch that some of it went back to that letter that called them to wake up. And they did. You see, they knew the author of the letter. He had the reputation of being dead. But they knew he was very much alive. And he lives today. And we come to his table, not to remember just his death, but to remember his life that calls us to a braver, more riskier way of life.